This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. But John Henry Falk may have experienced the most profound effect. He was a graduate student when he interviewed the former slaves, including the two women you hear in this broadcast. Himself interviewed just before he died in 1979, Falk was going on about how he believed in giving blacks the right to go to school, giving them the right to vote, giving them the right to go into anything they qualified for. And then he said he experienced an epiphany. I sat now on a wagon time with this old black man and was telling him what a different kind of white man I was. I remember him looking at me very sadly and kind of sweetly and condescending and said, you know, you still got the disease, honey. I know you think you're cured, but you're not cured. You can't give me the right to be a human being. I'm born with that right. Now you can keep me from having that. If you've got all the policemen and all the jobs on your side, you can deprive me of them, but you can't give it to me. And I was born with it just like he was. My God, it had a profound effect on me. I was furious with him. But the more I reflected on it, the more profoundly it affected me. And I realized this was where it really was. Mm. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, hold on, hold on. Stop it. Good morning. Good morning, Nubians. I wanted to start uh, kind of, you know. Yes, good everywhere. We worldwide. <laughs> yes. Hi, hi. Good morning, hi. Dr. Carr. Good morning. Good <sighs> so, uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Okay. Doing well. How are you? I am awesome. I am. I magnify you. I exalt you. I'm same thing. Far, yeah. Far yeah. All of the stuff that Daniel exactly. Black taught us to. No to question. How we oh, love each other. Yes. Um, sure. I, I, I want to start with uh, John Henry Falk. Uh, Michael Harriet actually played a clip, a snippet of that on his Twitter page this morning, uh, last night. And I was like, that's an interesting place to, yeah, sure, hats off always to Michael Harriet, mm -hmm. Nubian, and he and his wife. Uh, love them immensely. We're planning something in South Carolina that he's helping me with. So, oh, yes. wonderful. Yes, I love him. Um, but I was like, who the hell is John Henry Falk? Uh, born in Texas, a humorist. And I said, huh, huh. radio talk show host, hmm, hmm, folklorist, hmm, interesting. Is there something going on right now with a humorist who uh, fancies himself a liberal-minded uh, person who is, you know, um, saying things and seemingly setting himself on fire, but oh. also, you know, making a clarion call. Unlike that humorist, this humorist actually had an epiphany uh, because he talked to people and they told him, and we're so amazing that with love and condescension, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, condescension and a little bit of theft. In fact, keep talking. Let me see if I can get around here to this. Uh, uh, let me find out. Okay. Let me find out. There's a book. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Yes. I'm listening. With love and condescension, let him know that, you know, and it's something that we've been talking about for 156 now, going into 156 episodes, so that the power is not in the hands of anyone but us. You can't give us our rights. We should stop begging for rights, and we should stop begging for reparations. We should stop begging for people to uh, just do right. Stop beating us. Stop, stop killing us, police. Stop, stop doing all of this as Mississippi loses all of its rights. Jackson, to be exact, the second blackest city in the, in the the country now has no governing 
power has uh, been taken away from them in the in the le- legally legally elected. You know, we, we can say four now because uh, that ain't that dog ain't ain't, ain't ain't come out the kettle yet. We're gonna have a fight. It's time to oh, fight. Yeah. So this was what I wanted to say. Uh, is, is are the Jacksonites in the streets today? Are no, y'all no. out there in the streets? Are y'all? I know Rakia Lumumba's in them streets, but who's in, who's in the streets fighting for for the thing that you were born with? Your rights. No one can give them to you, but they can take them. Away. They can deny you. You're right. All right. Black That's studies right. matter. Yes. Oh, right. yeah. He's my people. You know, he's my people right here. Uh, hey. The Carter G. Woodson. Uh, hey, look, look. Oh, you flexible. Dunbar, okay. Dunbar High School. <laughs> Dunbar High School. Those are my people. I was down there Tuesday for their uh, smart, dope, and black final ceremonies for Black History Month. So shout out to, uh, as always, to Nubia Grima, to all the people at Dunbar. They had, man, you know, they black every day at Dunbar. So. And it's a, but it's a different population, which fits perfectly what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I'm sure they're in the streets. Like you say, we're keying them in the streets. Chokeway has just dropped all, you know, let's just call it what it is, apartheid. And uh, Tate Reeves, shout out to Tate Reeves with that bad dead cat staple to your head. And uh, it's close enough to win the Mississippi governor election. I know you saw, probably saw another one who's in the uh, <laughs> in the vein of the man you just played, a descendant of his type so far, I'd say, who is running for uh, governor of Mississippi coming up. He go in and he don't, he don't have to register anybody else to vote in Mississippi. If just the people registered to vote showed up, Tate Reeves will not be the governor of Mississippi in this coming election. So, uh, and then I'm no cooperation, Jackson. I saw uh, Baba uh, Akuno and them have a new edition of Cooperation Jackson, the book they did on what they're doing in Jackson with co-ops and all that. It's out. It is well. It comes out. I think in a couple of weeks. I was looking. I was stalking it. So I'll, I'll get a copy with everybody else when it comes out. But yeah, I mean, the fight is there. We just need more people to fight. Yeah, including yeah. people who think they're doing us favor. I mean, look, my hat is always off to you, but I had to put it back on to take it back off because I don't know what that dude Scott was talking. To you. You've been wrestling with that cat, which is incredibly important. You know, because black people don't make up the, the United States of America. Right. Well, for me, I, you know, I tend to ignore nonsense for the <laughs> most part because, you know, there's there's a couple of things you can analyze and, and suss out when you have platforms. Right. It's easy. It's, it's cherry picking almost. And I feel like it's almost lazy to have commentary around because what this guy did was very new nuanced, even though it seems very obvious. Right. He, he's playing a particular kind of game. And in, in his mind, he thinks he's so clever yeah. that, you know, but what he's also doing is bringing out the not so informed racist, the, the actual open racist who are like his champions, which I know he calculated that, too. Now, he may not be, you know, I'm, I want to drag James Bird. That happened this week. Um, uh, the one of the people that dragged him to until his torso came off. Uh, will was will be executed or was executed this week, um, and I didn't talk about it on my radio show because I, you know, I I can't say what I want to say. But, Unfortunately, um, there there are a lot of people this morning, right now, this afternoon, this evening, wherever folks are in the world, who are saying, "Who's James Bird?" Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, Scott 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 Adams may not be that guy, you know, um, but he's playing he's playing. Uh, in 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 the mud and uh you know listen he went from like a handful of followers to almost a million overnight so that not unusual 
Yeah, that immediately spells, you know, maybe $20,000 extra in his pocket every month from YouTube, you know, 20, 25,000 extra dollars, which, you know, one can live on, you oh, know. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, so the fact that papers that no one was reading anyway <laughs> canceled right. him. For now. Right. Sure there will be other uh, platforms that pick him up. Of course. Of course. Of Shout course. out to the billionaires, including the, uh, the team of billionaires who is funding um, in part. Apparently, if we look at the, you know, Angie Porter read it a lot closer than I did, but I did look at the, uh, it's about 73 pages of memory serves me crazy. Maybe it's 83 pages. Uh, complaint filed by the uh, expelled white law student at Howard who's suing Howard University who filed a pro se uh, discrimination lawsuit in D.C. court that was removed to federal court claiming racial discrimination at Howard. And so, you know, looking at, looking through the complaint and then you know, I know Angie read it a lot closer than I did. I'm thinking, wow, this is a, you know, and, and she confirmed it because, you know, she right. did more of these things than Ollie and worked for two federal judges, not to mention the city of Minneapolis. So she says it's a well-written complaint. In fact, his name is on it, pro se, but he had help. And when you look at the fine print, he is being helped by one of these right-wing outfits, the same people that file out. So th- I'm sure they'll pick Scott. So, 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 so let me, um, yeah. a couple of things came to, to mind this week. Um, number one, with that lawsuit, I, 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 I questioned because we had someone pop in a newbie on Monday and I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. all right, all right. All right, what's going on here? And I know that some people are like, I'm in my feelings again. I don't know what's going on. Because why would you go to Howard, uh, Rachel Dolezal, uh, this kid, and see, I see and then turn story. around and yeah. claim discrimination when the the entire school was built because of racism in this country. Oh. We only have HBCUs. I know, I know, it's complicated, right? But the uh, the, the legend is, Doctor Carr, that we cool. have HBCUs because black people were not allowed to go sit next to y'all's children in the the, the other schools, right? That's why right. we had to have these schools, right? So then why would you drag yourself into a space built for people who are disenfranchised from other spaces, number one? Number two, I'm looking at Florida. And I said, it's just going to be a matter of time before DeSantis in the legislature there, which is DeSantis light, outlaws Florida Memorial, Florida A&M, for well, being racist, right? I mean, that's should be A and M is public. And shout out to the cartoonist who did this week's uh, uh, cover of let me, the let New me, Yorker. Let me give you a solo. Hold on. Yeah, no, I'm just right quick. I'll cover <laughs> with Ron DeSantis cutting up books. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to show that. Keep going, keep going in Florida. No, I'm <laughs> asking the question: What? Uh, how long before they're they're outlawing HBCUs for being racist? For oh, being I'm racist. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like that. That seems to be a natural. You know, and they've been banging on affirmative action until they finally, this is going to be it, I think, the final bang. They, they had the little redheaded child from Texas. That didn't work. And now they got the numbers They're on the official. court. So, mm, who, didn't have, who didn't have the grades to get into UT Austin anyway, who was funded by Ed Bloom, another of those billionaires. I'm just saying. on the steps of the Supreme Court and watched Ed Bloom and Sarah Fisher after the decision came down. The, before the decision, we were all down there protesting. After the decision, the crowd was a lot whiter as they claimed some form of partial victory. And I cheer them on. I, I encourage them. Tear it up. Tear it up. It's a beautiful thing, Professor Hunter. That's why I took my glasses off. Why? Why, <laughs> Professor Ken Hunter? I got a whole set of days where I don't have to go to Georgia Avenue campus or the, or the law school. And I'm sitting, okay, now, what am I going to do today? Tomorrow, I'm looking back. And 
Here you done drug me into this thing. Mm, 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 mm. Why? Why did you do this to us? The world did that. I, I'm just no, uh, commenting on it. I'm just saying, no. hey, look over here. Look the over here. Richard Wright, by way of my friend and brother, Ta-Nehisi Coates, between the world and me is you. <laughs> so you, you did this. There's a whole universe. And then there are people who narrate. Young people now calling it platform. We're borrowing their language. But the simple fact of the matter is, that we cannot process all of reality. I had this conversation with my hip hop class on Thursday afternoon as we were talking about the information wave and how they're managing it and, and chat GPS and everything else, which is making college education already skyrocketing into unfordability. And by the way, you saw the Supreme Court argued the debt case on Tuesday, but it's making it less and less connected to classroom learning in real time. I said, how are y'all managing this? And we talked about the fact that between the universe of reality and the attempt to try to get some handle on it are the mediators. And it used to be classroom teachers. It used to be parents and family and community, but the technology has washed that away. So between the world and me is you. So when you pay attention to something and you talk about it, this is narrative. This, in other words, not, not just narrative with a K, which is silent, but narrative in terms of how do I reduce this to a thing where folk can come in using that handle and then open back up and to do thinking for themselves. This makes people who are, have a quote unquote platform of more than two or three or a hundred or a thousand people more important now than any time in the way. That's why I took my glasses off because you putting it as Joe Madison would say where the goats can get it. But we ain't talking about goats. We talking about people and nobody can make sense of this fire holes of information some we need roadmaps we need points of entry and you just you providing us one this morning i just thought i was gonna get a day of pleasant conversation but i guess not <laughs> i mean I, you just hmm. i mean what do they call them birth pains you know pay attention Facts. you know so i just i'm like when when that howard lawsuit came down i was like so you knew you were going to an HBCU, right? I mean, well, well, well here's the thing. That's why I, I mean, I don't even think they discriminate because I'm in the Morehouse and they're white. There are a lot of white people in Morehouse. They every, even in the fraternities, which I think is blasphemous well, onto himself. No, I'm like, mm, no, no, you cannot. No, we can't. We can't. We can't. And we can't. Right? We cannot. Well, but, it's not. This is a thing, and there are people, including people high up in Howard's administration and in its old school thinking some people who will remind us that at its inception howard it's not an hbcu uh oh god yeah damn it oh and shout out to howard university uh their uh, charter day is tonight the big fundraising banquet where everybody will have their tuxedos and dresses and stuff on I, if you catch me in a tuxedo you will know my body has been snatched <laughs> on the occasions that where i've gotten a ticket to go to charter day i will be going tonight but uh on occasions i will always wear something african and people will say oh we love that and i said well i thank you i can't say i love what you got on because nobody has been able to explain to me i actually had to read it for myself at which point i know you don't know why you've got that string tied around your neck but it's all right it's very lovely and i'm sure it cost you a lot of money oh wait no you own that tuxedo class plays a role bring us back to the point then in march 1867 when andrew johnson probably drunk signed the charter that created howard university and you know no one has any direct evidence of this and the best scholars and archivists and researchers 
have tried to track it down, probably none more zealously over the years than Michael Winston, Professor Winston, Dr. Winston, who uh, often reminded us that, um, and he's still around, reminds us that Howard's not an HBCU, not at its founding. Um, nobody has any evidence of whether he was drunk or not, or whether he even knew what he was signing or not. But one thing's for sure, the same day that he signed the charter creating Howard University, the federal charter, he signed, or vetoed rather, which it made its way through both houses of the federal legislature, the House of Representatives and the Senate, vetoed the Reconstruction Act, the first one. So it's 1867. The smoke is still, the fires are still burning in Montgomery, Alabama, and in Richmond, Virginia, the two cradles of the Confederacy. The Africans are still fighting their way out of enslavement into the sequel to slavery, as Carter Woodson calls it. Uh, you know, the the poor whites are still stumbling their way back toward their ruined small patches of land and engendering the resentment that will make full bloom by the late 19th or 20th century, what they call today the lost cause, the cause of Tate Reeves, the cause of Andrew DeSantis, who don't know nothing about it because at this time his ancestors were still in Italy, and the cause of uh, Greg Abbott in Texas and, and, and Ralph, and, uh, what's the boy? I started to say Ralph Northern in Virginia. He's not the governor anymore. Shout out to my brother. Justin Fairfax, who still can't get a hearing, apparently, once they somebody's got a platform, once they put a narrative on you, you know, what the hell can you do? But Ralph Northern was the Democratic governor of Virginia, who did dress up in blackface, so I guess Ralph Northern is in it, too. There's a new book, Margaret Edge, just wrote on Ralph Northern, but no, I'm thinking about the cover. Oh, yeah, Glenn, Glenn Youngkin. I don't think his ancestors were on this side of the Atlantic, either. But the lost cause, so the poor whites are stumbling their way back. Still the best thing written on this. Not just not in terms of information and data. There's been a lot more data added, but in terms of narrative, there is nothing that surpasses. 1935, William Edward Burgard Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America, where Du Bois said you had a little window to remake this thing, and you missed it. But when he writes about this period, we're talking about what he's really writing about, and what we need to think about over and over again in a renewed fashion is. That, uh, as my friend Imani Perry kind of documents in a lot of ways in her recent book, South to America, Imani, born in Alabama, mama, of course, uh, from down that way, uh, doctor herself, worked many years in Massachusetts, Teresa Perry. Um, I use her work a lot with uh, the work she did with Asa Hilliard, Baba Asa Hilliard, and uh, Claude Steele, young, gifted, and black, a master educator, her daughter, Imani Perry. Uh, in her recent book, South to America, talks about the, you know, the, the kind of meaning of the United States. You got to look at the South. And I agree, of course, with Amani. It's a brilliant book. But I would go a whole lot farther than Amani does because, see, um, I have no investment. None. No investment at all in the social structure we live in. Beyond remaking it fundamentally from the bottom up, top down, inside out, outside in, how do you want to look at it? And that does not mean I don't have an investment in people of any racial or cultural background out of, as August Wilson said, my black foundation. We speak to the universal things that make us human in the world, that make us part of the ecosystem of living things that give us some form of shared universal meaning. But I stand completely against white supremacy. And if you embrace it, you are my open enemy. Welcome. Let's dance. So in 1867, when Howard University's charter was signed, perhaps by a drunken or misinformed or inattentive Andrew Johnson, that racist out of North Carolina who lived for a long time in Tennessee. And sometimes when I go home, I'll pass through where Andrew Johnson's farm was and pay my respects. A little saliva 
to kind of enliven my journey. But um, Johnson also vetoed the Reconstruction Act. You Negroes not going to get free. And as Michael Winston and others constantly remind us that this is the season, this period of the Civil War amendments, the 13th Amendment, banning enslavement or involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime of which I always keep a constitution here, often for laughs, but you know, because people love to talk about rights as if they exist. Shout out to our good brother, uh, what's his name? Nelson, Jamal Nelson. Just uh, where rights went wrong is the book. Very interesting. I'd love to talk to that brother at some point. Yeah, here it is. The uh, 13th Amendment, of course, which we've talked about many times, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, July 9th, 1868, so about a year and a quarter after Howard University had its charter, which says all persons born or naturalized in the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Jamal Green. I always think Nelson for some reason. I got his book right here. I've been reading it. It's fascinating because uh, Professor Green, who's at Columbia University, brother, argues that maybe the rights-based concept of how we're trying to create a different society, maybe anchoring it in the notion that we have these inalienable rights, that might not be the best strategy, depending on how these rights have been rolled out over the arc of this settler state. I'm calling it that, not Professor Green. 14th Amendment, and here's where Howard is not at HBCU, or at least wasn't, black as hell. But see, HBCU, the important thing to understand is this difference in the in the technical language between a historically black college and university in the United States. And this is for people who live in outside the country who we get more and more of them every, every day in narrative and more and more every day in the open facing YouTube space and other spaces. And you, you never cease to amaze me, Prof, that you have us full spectrum, Apple and all the podcast places. And I'm like, well, Lord have mercy. I know I got to be on tune if I try to hit two licks of a song now, because God only knows who's listening to this. But for those who may not be aware, historically black college or university is one that was founded during the period of and with explicit um, prevention of race mixing. So historically black college and university, for example, like the one I went to, Tennessee A&I, Tennessee Agricultural and Industrial State College for Negroes, now Tennessee State University, when it was founded in 1912, it was against the law for a white to enroll at Tennessee State. So it's historically black. Same thing for Kentucky State and Frankfort, Kentucky. Same thing for West Virginia State. In the case of West Virginia State, it is now majority white. However, it retains historically black college and university status because when it was founded in West Virginia, uh, not Storrow College, which is another school. If I've just, we talked about that many, 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 many sessions ago. That's also in West Virginia. Uh, no longer open, but West Virginia State, when it was founded, apartheid was the law of the land in the state of West Virginia, most of the, much of the country. Well, Florida Agricultural and Mechanical State College for Negroes is also the historically a historically black college or university in the state of Florida. Unlike Florida Memorial, uh, unlike Edward Waters, shout out to the African Methodist Episcopal Church private schools, um, Florida A and M is a public school which is uh, which was prohibited by Florida law from enrolling whites. Um, and I'll give you one other example, uh, South Carolina State University, which is literally next to 
right next to. I love the, the fact that they never repair the hole that's in the fence, which is the only thing that technically separates South Carolina State University and the great Claflin University, of course, Cat Adams and uh, uh, Baba Omotosho, Dr. Black, Daniel Black. And uh, I saw that uh, Dr. Nate Norman, his wife, Mama Rosemary Norman, Baba and, and, and Mama Norman were down with uh, Dan and Cat and Andre Key and the whole Claflin family on Monday night while we were in office hours, they were literally on the campus of Claflin University with the community there anchored in the students. That's private. It's private school. But right through that hole in the fence is South Carolina State University. It is a state school prohibited by law at its founding from enrolling white people. So it is historically black. Those are historically black colleges and universities. Now, there is another category that of schools which have been black from their inception or increased or became increasingly now damn near exclusively non-white anchored in blackness that are not historically black colleges but are black institutions sometimes they call them msis minority serving institutions something this kind of thing in that category of course citizens and folks in chicago the chicago people uh, you know, of course, you were put into that category, the community colleges of Chicago, Olive Harvey, Malcolm X. Uh, you were put into a category like that, Chicago State University. Shout out to longtime professor of Black Studies at Chicago State University, now director of education at the DuSable Museum, our sister and fellow Nubian, uh, Kim Delaney. And by the way, Kim, I did another two. I, I went down. She was a consultant on this. Remember I told you all about this Emmett and Mamie Till exhibit, which is down at the... Um, the Martin Luther King Library in Washington, D.C. It closes next week. It's really something. It's interactive. If you want to know more about it, um, they got reflections. Of course, there's the famous picture of, of Mamie Till with her boy Emmett. Um, this is really, really, really uh, a remarkable exhibit. It's interactive, um, interpretive. Look it up. The Emmett Till and maybe Till Mobley exhibit entitled let the world see anyway so kim was a consultant on this piece she helped put that together along with a with a raft of other teachers and scholars academics but kim worked for years at chicago state university it is not an hbcu although it's black as hell of course in brooklyn where brooklyn at well you know in holland but the name brooklyn which of course was the second largest city in the united states of america until the end of the 19th century when it merged with the rest of the boroughs to become greater new york well in brooklyn of course there is mega wiley evers mega evers college of course where uh your comrade and now my comrade and our sister as well the great larry daniels favors works there um, pursuing social justice and also became part of the karen hunter squad which is just so strong now at this point they should just leave any thought of messing with you alone not that they ever do think about that if they're serious they wake up and apologize if they do dream of it but larie works at mega evers mega evers is not an hbcu but it's black as hell in brooklyn around the corner from Evans field at least the Evans field housing project that went up after they knocked down the uh, house in some ways that jackie robinson built not literally but made relevant in the borough of brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s but that that's another category. They are majority black schools, but they're not historically black because they did not, they were not born in a period of apartheid in this country, the sequel to slavery, as Carter Woodson calls it. And so they were not prohibited by law. On March 2nd, 1867, however, in the season when the 13th Amendment passed in 1865, the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection of the law was passed in 1868. And the 15th Amendment, which we'll return to, which was passed in 1870, 
saying that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state of, on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That should end it, section one of the 15th Amendment, but there is a section two. Section two says the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That would be the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the appropriate legislation, but the power to guarantee a right to the degree, as Professor Green says, that it exists to vote does not rest in the Civil Rights Act of 1865, but in the 15th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, uh, which also has a section which enables it, that would be section five of the 14th Amendment, says the Congress should have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. The Civil Rights Act of 1860, I'm sorry, of 1964, preceded by the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and earlier acts. Well, the, the, the power of equal protection under the law and due process under the law, as the current uh, newest justice of the Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Ketanji uh, Onyika Brown Jackson, constantly reminds her rather uh, rather improvisational colleagues like Samuel Landa Cotton Alito, in particular, who just seems hell bent on making the Constitution mean whatever the hell he thinks it should mean. You should listen to the oral arguments that they had on student debt. Uh, earlier this week when Alito seems to just want to give standing to these hillbilly states that want to destroy the pot, your possibility of relieving up to $20,000 of your student debt by giving them standing when there doesn't seem to be anything that allows them to have standing. And Justice Brown Jackson is no joke on this, but as Justice Brown Jackson keeps reminding folk, the, 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 the enabling power of the Civil Rights Act of 1860, I'm sorry, 1964, I keep saying 18 because I'm thinking about the acts that were passed before the 14th Amendment. Still good law, by the way. You're talking about a case in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1864 for employment discrimination. You're going to draw in that case from the uh, 14th Amendment. The Civil Rights Act of 18, 1964 is not the enabling uh, legislation, which kind of gives you those quote unquote rights to due process and equal protection. It is the 14th Amendment. Section five of that amendment says Congress can pass laws that they need to, to enforce the amendment, but it's in the constitution. It's not in the statutes that are passed. Um, and of course, the notion of, and we talked about this a lot, you know, Prof, you talked about this with Angie Porter many times and other lawyers. We've talked about it here, this penumbra of rights, the courts interpreting rights that may or may not be there, but of course they're there at the court city there, right? It depends. But I'm saying all that to say that in the season of the 13th Amendment, 1865, the 14th Amendment, 1868, the 15th Amendment, 1870, in 1867, between the 13th and 14th Amendment, Howard University's charter was passed. And the reason that you can say technically Howard's not an HBCU is because in its charter, it is stated explicitly that Howard University cannot discriminate by race because it was in the season of reconstruction, you see. So the school, the Howard University, named for Oliver Otis Howard. And I just finished, remember when we read in our intro to Africana Studies class in, in, in Nubia, we read that uh, introduction from the great Vincent Harding, Vincent Gordon Harding, uh, when 
in, from his book, There is a River. And I'm looking because I just finished going through another part of that with my students at Howard on Thursday. Here's the book. I encourage everybody to read this book because this narrative, again, going back to where we started this morning, this narrative, this ability to think about all the information in a way that puts it as a point of entry for all of us to think. Vincent Harding's beautiful prose. You know, it's different than Du Bois, but it has gestures of Du Bois. As, I mean, because part of being able to help us think is being able to tell a story. You got to engender thinking. And while I'm thinking about those who engender thinking, I want to mention uh, a new ancestor made transition a couple of days ago at age 89. That is, of course, the great Wayne Shorter. This is a bio that was written about 20 years ago called Footprints, the Life and Work of Wayne Shorter. Uh, the woman, Michelle Mercer, who took on the task of helping Wayne Shorter tell his story, talks in this book about how she went to Wayne Shorter, of course, born in Newark. I think his mom was born in Philly, if memory serves me correctly. It's been a long time since I read this, but I was looking around. I said, oh, man, I know I got your book around here somewhere, and there it was sticking. I'm glad it wasn't in storage with the thousands of others, but, you know, Wayne Shorter was the man, is the man. But at any rate, she said Wayne Shorter would often answer questions in ways that had nothing in her mind to do with anything she asked him. And then a week, a month, a year to this day later, she say, oh, shit, that's what he, Wayne Shorter's not going to make it easy for you. It's like a Baba Lawa. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's like, he's going to tell you something. Saying, well, you know, narrative is important, how you conceive, how you think. But it's important, as I think about Vincent Harding, when he writes in There is a River, and I'll tell you why I brought this up in a moment. In fact, let me see, can I find this very quickly? Because we haven't left the charter, and Professor Hunter opened up this box today. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll never be able to find it quickly, but I might be able to find it if I take about 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one lift off 318 i think is where it is see part of time and space is you got to shrink it sometime down to a matter of a few seconds and if you can do that hence why i keep this you can shrink your idea that you were rushing just slow it down give yourself a frame and think forward on page 318 the beginning of this chapter chapter 16 the struggle ends the struggle begins there is a river oliver howard here we go when I just read it. When the showdown came between the black quest for land and justice on the one hand and Andrew Johnson's policy of easy pardons for the Confederate landowners on the other, Johnson after book, uh, after Lincoln is killed and they'll all be down there this April. I may go down there to Forest Theater to watch them carry on this ritual as they reenact the murder of and long vigil for Abraham Lincoln as he died across the street. Again, rituals are important. Why do you study the past? Because it gives you a narrative frame to live the present and imagine the future. It's not just for the exercise of knowing stuff about the past. That I mean, what good would that be? Although there are those, myself included, who would say that has its own function. But at any rate, Andrew Johnson became president, this racist, and welcomed his white brothers from the South back into the Union. It did not take place all at once, Harding writes. He says, the hope was not exploded in any one moment. In fact, the dream of 40 acres and a mule never died within the black communities of America. But one place, the one time, was so powerful a symbol that it cannot be ignored. On Thursday, October 19th, 1865, on Edisto Island, some 25 miles southwest of Charleston, and not too far, 
from where uh, Dr. Adams and Black were Monday night, the time and place were joined. As the drama unfolded, the Freedmen's Bureau and its leader, General Oliver Otis Howard, played crucial, tragic roles. Pause right here. Remind ourselves that we have just passed the anniversary of the founding of the Freedmen's Bank. Professor Hunter, we'll tie all this together in a minute. In fact, it sent me back to the great Frederick Douglass, who was appointed to be one of the administrators of the Freedmen's Bank, even as the white boys were raiding the Freedmen's Bank and using the money to speculate and gamble. I'm sorry, what do they call it? Uh, invest in stock market, things like that. And the bank failed, leading Fred Douglass to write, the colored people have suffered so much on account of the failure of the Freedmen's Bank. Their loss by this institution was a peculiar hardship coming as it did upon them in the days of their greatest weakness. It is certain that the depositors in this institution were led to believe that as Congress had chartered it and established its headquarters at the Capitol, the government in some way was responsible for the safekeeping of their money. Yeah, these black people who had pennies to put together, put their money in the Freedmen's Bank thinking the government has guaranteed our bank. <laughs> no, they let the white boys at the money, just like Andrew Johnson let his white Confederate friends back into South Carolina to take that land. Goes on, uh, Douglas writes, without the dissemination of this belief, it would never have had the confidence of the people as it did. You told, you thought black people, they trusted the government then, not so much now, nor have secured such an immense deposit. Nobody authorized to speak for the government ever corrected this deception. But on the contrary, Congress continued to legislate for the bank as if all that had been claimed for it was true. Under these circumstances, together with much more that might be said in favor of such a measure, we ask Congress to reimburse the unfortunate victims of that institution and thus carry hope and give to many fresh encouragement in the battle of life. Well, we're still waiting on that. That's one of the small incidents, although very important. This is from uh, the writings of Frederick Douglass, volume four, Reconstruction and After, if you want a cite for that. Still waiting on that, uh, make good on all that money that black people put in the Freedmen's Bank. That's part of the case for reparations. But at any rate, uh, the Freedmen's Bank was named the Freedmen's Bank because it's affiliated with the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau was led by Oliver Otis Howard, General Howard, the same one Howard University is named for, who was a Congregationalist, uh, member of the Congregationalist Church. They, they met at a prayer meeting. They're going to start an uh, institution for the teaching and training of Negro, I'm sorry, of teachers and preachers. Now, they had Negroes in mind, but to get a federal charter, you can't discriminate by race. Why? Because this is when the smoke of the Civil War is still wafting over the land, and they are not going to pass federal legislation which is going to reinforce what Carl Woodson calls the sequel to slavery, which is apartheid. It's going to take some time to put apartheid in place, and it's going to come from the states first in the last quarter of the 19th century. This is what Du Bois is writing about in Black Reconstruction in America. The betrayal, what Rayford Logan, uh, Du Bois's junior protege and friend, also friend of Carter Woodson, called the betrayal of the Negro in the 1890s, 1880s and 90s after Reconstruction ends. Very important, but this is not that time yet. We are still in the era when the smoke of the Civil War is still cleared here in the United States. And they're passing legislation that sounds good as hell on paper. But now you got to make it stand up and salute, which is why you have the enabling sections of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment so that Congress can pass legislation to make those rights such as they are stand up. And Kataji Brown Jackson keeps reminding Sam Alito, that exquisite Chef Kiff's uh, defender of white supremacy on the Supreme Court, and his friends 
that uh, when you go to the legislative record, we know the intent of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So quit pussyfooting with the 14th Amendment as if you don't know from the record, Mr. Strict Constructionist. And by the way, bruh, uh, the cat from Savannah. Yeah, you know, uh, Pinpoint, Georgia. You know, uh, Clarence, Clarence. Look, man, could you put tell your wife you call her back? Put the cell phone down and come back in here into this judicial co conference and let's talk again in the chapter and verse of the uh of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. They'll, those are amendments. I know you keep trying to go back to the founders because you're just such, more, such much more comfortable with them, although both of us would be having this debate in a damn cotton field if you just went to damn uh, James Madison. But those 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, they are to the Constitution, Clarence. So they count too. Bruh, who hurt you? Who hurt you, Clarence? But at any rate, as Katanji Brown Jackson keeps reminding these people, those amendments carry in them in the strict interpretation of the literal language, much less the judicial, I'm sorry, the legislative conferences that went into writing the legislation, their intent. And so the intent of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment is to eliminate racial discrimination. And John Boy Roberts, Johnny John John, Johnny John John, Johnny John John, who loves the, the First Amendment, Whereas maybe a little reticence on the Second Amendment, no such reticence for Clarence Thomas. He's about strapped, getting everybody strapped. But Sam Alito and them too, uh, except when you know somebody comes to their house to protest, at which point they hide behind the the you know the, the police. But at any rate, John Roberts always well, the way to the way to end discrimination is to end discrimination, as if the sun gonna start shining and the angels gonna start singing and everybody. Damn man, nobody ever thought of that. Well, yeah, the Reconstruction governments thought about that, and in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, they are doing their best to ban racial uh, discrimination, ban racial oppression if they can do that at all through the Constitution. It's very clear that they can't, not exclusively. But they're not doing it by all of a sudden getting rid of racial distinctions completely. They're saying that in order to do this, we have to somehow, and I, I will use the legal language. Well, no, let me not. Let me not. We have to somehow address what happened to these people when race was put in the foundation of the document and in the country to set the county to begin with. The Indians, we don't know what the hell to do with them. Took them up to 1924 to even give them the right to vote. And, you know, we, we kind of created a whole different thing. They're different nations, technically. But these Negroes you brought over here that you said aren't human, my God, the ancestors got jokes. 1857, this is the week that the Dred Scott decision, March 1867, was handed down. Roger Tani, that exquisite racist in the spirit of Sam Alito. Or Alito in the spirit of Roger Tawney, Roger B. Tawney, says that you know Negroes don't have any rights that anybody is bound to respect. You can give them some rights if you want, but you ain't bound to give them rights because they're not written into the federal document or the practice of most of the places in the country with rights. Again, to echo Jamal Green, maybe the rights-based thing ain't the easiest thing to do. But anyway, I won't say too much more about that because I'm still reading and still digesting. Professor Green's thoughts, but not Roger Taney's. He's very clear. In fact, Mark Graber's book, Dred Scott and the Problem of Constitutional Evil, I'm just looking at it over here, kind of does a very good job of that. It's baked into the document. Well, yeah, this is the week of the Dred Scott decision. Let me just pass that as we keep continuing. Just maybe think about that. We're in, the, we're in the season now. We're in the month when Christ moves from uh, heroic 
grassroots worker and community organizer to martyr, narked out by the counterintelligence program uh, and, 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 the, and the people they flip in his community. Shout out to Judas. No, uh, this can't be true. Was it was it the first week of March? Yeah. Remember those young white kids in Media, Pennsylvania, broke into that FBI office and discovered those papers that were. Yeah, I had to check. Uh, Paul Coates just republished the two volumes of the COINTELPRO papers out of Black Classic Press. Um, uh, Vanderval and Ward Churchill edited them. But if memory serves me correctly, Professor Hunter and everyone, somebody put in newbie. I need to open the app so I can see. I think that the memo. I think <laughs> ancestors, boy. I think that the memo. The FBI memo which said that the federal government, particularly the FBI, should work hard, among other things, to, quote, prevent the rise of a black messiah. And then name people who might be candidates now that Martin King was dead. Stoney Carmichael, Huey Newton, leading Stoney Carmichael to get the hell out of the country, eventually goes to West Africa to Guinea, uh, falls in love with Mary's Miriam, McCabe, Miriam McCabe's birthday is this week, too. Well, I'll be damned. Pata Pata is a song we sing down Johannesburg way. And all the people start to dance when they hear Pata Pata play. This was, of course, Oh, what was the name of the group? Mary McCabe, born in South Africa. I think this week, actually. She's an ancestor now. Um, had to leave South Africa. Her brother, friend, at one time husband, Hugh Masakela, had to leave South Africa. They became global recording artists and stars, but they carried the message, the cultural meaning making, through their cultural meaning making of the movement and memory of South Africa. And they help feed the global governance structure of Pan-Africanism. Masakela, the famous pictures I've talked about in the township there, Soweto, leaping in the air with the trumpet that Louis Armstrong had sent him as a young man. Um, Miriam Makeba leaving South Africa, not to return until after apartheid was over, missed the death of her mother. In the documentary Mama Africa, she became known as Mama Africa because she traveled the African continent. She traveled the world spreading the message of Africa. She learned songs in many languages on the African continent. She traveled all over. Uh, Angelique Kijo, of course, today is one of her daughters in that in that message, in that movement, kind of messaging this type of cultural meaning making. Um, when she was able to return, finally, her mother had made transition. And when you look at the documentary Mama Africa, you see Miriam Makeba sitting at and on the grave of her mother deeply moving because she missed her mother's physical transition even as her mother was with her every day of her life and then Mary McCabe of course arriving in the United States is platformed to use the young people's message and language is platformed given an international audience by a brother raised in New York City whose people came from the Caribbean uh-uh ants come on ancestors y'all got jokes I think Harry Belafonte's birthday is his birth on the first of March anyway Harry Belafonte gives Miriam McCabe also born in the first week of March a uh born today today is her birthday <laughs> oh thank you April 4th is, is the so we're a little early on Cointel Pro wow today is Miriam McCabe's birthday and her birthday is I think three or four days before Harry Belafonte I think he's March the first but at any rate Gives her, gives her the platform to do all that work. All right, so let me pause. 
walk all this back because we haven't left Howard University the charter and this problem that we face. Makeba, Masakela, all of them exiles from South Africa, spreading the message, the movement in memory, the cultural meaning making, which allows us to build a global governance structure, one that we are engendering and extending in Nubia and narrative and all over all the platforms, including YouTube, as folks join us today, this global kind of movement. Well, what you see is that all of that is coming as we confront, as we know from framing question five of our Introduction to Africana Studies course, how do Africans make sense of and participate in international developments? We are becoming aware of each other at a time when these former colonies of Europe in the Western Hemisphere are jostling with how they're going to maintain their racial hierarchies, like the United States of America in the 1860s, which causes the split called the Civil War, like the European countries that gave birth to those colonies, like the United States of America, fighting each other in the 19th century, spilling into the 20th century, then invading Africa as early as the 15th century in, in mass, but then really up, upping it in the late 19th century. Berlin Conference of 1884, 1885, so forth, and then, then the starting gun, and they go in and try to invade, thereby creating these artificial states, which fight their way out of this social structure um, oppression maybe two generations later. No, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll come to that in a second. Just remind me y'all in a minute uh, because if memory serves me correctly, if memory serves me correctly today or this week, tomorrow is the anniversary of the birth of the modern state of Ghana. Yeah, today is the fourth, right? It's the fifth or the sixth when Ghana was born in 1957, technically. In fact, Oh, yeah. Hold on. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I do want to mention here our dear friend and sister. The reason that I'm even here because she's the one who connected us, Professor. And of course, uh, who texted me last week to inform me that something was going to take place. And earlier this week, Tuesday, I think it was, around the time I was at Dunbar with, with the young folk, um, Viola Fletcher, age 108. And Hughes Van Ellis, who's 102, young boy, they became citizens of the Republic of Ghana. Yes, that's right. Here in Washington, D.C., the Ghanaian Republic extended to them and certified them as citizens of Ghana. These two survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. Now, we, we put a lot of things on the table, so let me start stitching them together. When Howard University's charter was signed in March, 1865 by a racist who was at the same time trying to blunt the potential of the United States being re remade from the inside out, being led in that remake by Africans who had been kidnapped and the descendants of those Africans now in the soil of the United States, primarily in the South. Well, when that was happening, Johnson was trying to keep white supremacy rolling and he was trying to do it by blunting any legislative in any legislative attempt to remake the country, no, no matter how tepidly, as Du Bois writes in Black Reconstruction in America, by white politicians like Charles Sumner, of course, who was hell-bent for remaking the whole place, and then more conservative ones who ain't trying to remake the whole thing, but who are worried because you got 4 million Africans almost in the South who will have a say. So when that betrayal takes place that I was reading about here, when Johnson allows those enslavers to go back and take their land, as the drama unfolded, 
and I'll tie the rest together after I finish reading from Benson Harding, chapter 16. There's a river as drama unfolds at the Freedmen's Bureau and its leader, General Oliver O. Howard. Right. General Howard was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau. He got a Freedmen's Bank. They sold him out there. You got a Freedmen's Bureau. The, the black people. And by the way, the Freedmen's Bureau, again, like Howard University, like those Civil War amendments, you can't discriminate by race. The Freedmen's Bureau, which was the, the country's first federal social welfare organization coming out of the Civil War. It was named the Freedmen's Bureau, but it ended up like Aid for Families for Dependent Children. It ended up like Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. It ended up like social programs of today helping more whites than anybody. It helped the poor whites, many of whom had taken up arms against the United States of America. But when the Freedmen's Bureau, named for the enslaved Africans, came into existence, they didn't make a distinction between who hadn't eaten today, who needed blankets today, who needed some form of bringing their lives together today, their shattered lives. And guess who they helped as well? Oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton because I can go to the Freedmen's Bureau and they haven't forgotten me. Look away, look away. <laughs> yeah, poor whites got help. But somehow it gets tarred with blacks because it helps some black people. Y'all know how y'all are, Tam, Tom, land of cotton. First thing to fall is cats with no chin. As the drama unfolded, the Freedmen's Bureau and its leader, General Oliver Howard, played crucial, tragic roles, Vincent Harding writes. By that time, Johnson's actions had already effectively undermined one of the Bureau's most important original functions as a protector of Black people in their independent use of the land. So one of the things it did do is say, this is the federal agency that's going to guarantee you use of this land. And if we can, Rufus Saxton, William Tecumseh Sherman, Oliver Howard, ownership of the land. We can get into whether ownership of land is good or bad principle, but that's set aside. The ruler, the ruler of the United States of America is land ownership, and y'all been working here for centuries, and these white people turned against the United States of America, therefore they are traitors, so we're going to punish them, jail them. Wait, I'm sorry, then or now? Uh, January 6th commission. No, we're not really going to put them in jail. We're going to Tell them, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's let's let us come together as uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the damn general who won the damn Civil War, said in 1870 when he ran or was it 72 when he ran for reelection. Let us come together. Let us unite. <laughs> All right. Anyway. By that time. Johnson's actions had already effectively undermined one of the Bureau's most important original functions as a protector of black people in their independent use of land. So what ends up happening? The same. Andrew Johnson, who says, Howard University, I'll sign the charter. Oh, my head, I got a headache. What is this? I'm going to sign it, which is the running joke among the historians. He didn't know that he signed it. But this other bill, this, this Reconstruction Act, I'm vetoing this. You're not going to let these black people into this working settler criminal enterprise called United States of America with any deep investment anchored in ownership. Well, who do they send to tell the black people in South Carolina that you're not getting this land? Well, they send Oliver Otis Howard. In October, Vincent Harding writes, Howard was on a tour trying to explain to black men and women why it was impossible for them to have the land he had originally promised them. He requested that Edisto's overwhelmingly black community be brought together so he might address them. Word of trouble and betrayal had already flashed through the islands and when the one-armed general arrived, his choices were signaled in the makeup of his party, which included one of the biggest white landowners in the area. Here come Howard to tell them they ain't gonna get no land and the people come with him. Here come one of the biggest criminals in the damn state of South Carolina. Remind me, Professor Hunter, I want to have a few comments to say 
about what's this boy's name he's on the front page of the new york times today he's on the front page of the new york times y'all recognize this dude right here <laughs> let me see let me get it where i can see murdoch yes sir yes sir you know put him you know game life sentence right bro uh black people not only black people are black judge. The black oh, judge. yes, sir. Right. We'll talk about you know, him in a minute. All right, I had not been following this story at all until, until, the, until the conviction and then the sentencing that came back to back. And then I started reading, and then people, of course, in the audience, uh, you know uh, XM, they were like, "Oh no, this this family they've been killing people for a while, oh, wow. <laughs> like a whole history." But then they have all of this acreage. What that's where uh he killed his wife and his son, convicted of. So I'm not calling it out. I'm not saying alleged. He's been convicted. I was like, that sounds like a plantation. Low country, a thousand acres. There is a river. Okay, come on. The low country. That's where Oliver Howard was telling them black people. Prof, you said this for she says it, y'all. For those of you who don't know, before we ever go on, she said the ancestors of God in this. We didn't not, none of this rehearsed. We have a conversation. Prof, that's that land. That's the same land. His people come from them people that Andrew Johnson told, come on back home, I'll give it to you. And they sent Howard out to tell the black people, you can't have this land. Uh, Murdoch and them get it back. Murdoch, daddy judge, granddaddy judge, great grandfather was the judge and the man who sentenced him, Judge Clifton Newman, ordered during the trial that Murdoch's grand, great grandfather's picture, no, Murdoch's grandfather's picture be taken from the wall of the courtroom. We will have no bias in here. See, because because Clifton Newman, the judge, the black judge, grew up in that community in the low country. Clifton Newman, who went to undergrad and grad school, um, law school in Ohio, in Cleveland State and Case Western, if memory serves me correctly, but y'all check it in the chat. Clifton Newman, Judge Newman, came from a family who had some early politicians in the Reconstruction government who were betrayed during this period we're talking about right now in the 1870s and 80s. Newman went to a segregated school which had a better quality. Don't at me. Better quality of cultural investment in the future of those children than schools in the post-segregation era. Because every teacher in the segregated schools had an investment in replicating themselves in the future because the purpose of education is to train your replacement and when we know as Sharif el Meki has reminded you and me and all of us as we continue to work to create more black teachers in the United States of America that many of the teachers may love the children but they ain't trying to have these children they don't look at these children as their replacements the segregated schools did and young Clifton Newman went to those segregated schools and in one of the schools I think it was a junior high school um, he was tapped to play a lawyer reenacting the famous South Carolina case, Briggs versus Elliot. We talked about Briggs versus Elliot when we talked about Septa McClart. Y'all go back in the archive, in the narrative archive. We won't do it again here, but I'm just mentioning that name, um, Briggs versus Elliot, which is reenacted on the beautiful mural in metal, the freeze that the great sculptor Ed Dwight did, which sits on the yards of the Carolina State House, South Carolina State House in Columbia. Briggs versus Elliot, one of those important cases. Um, young, young Clifton Newman was tapped to play a lawyer in that. He didn't have a suit. He says, so I think it was his grandfather. His grandfather and father took me down and bought me my first suit. And when he went to undergrad, 
he was studying history and, and somebody said to him, you should go to law school. He said, at that moment, I went back to that day. I put on my first suit with that yellow shirt. And I thought about the fact that I want to give my life on the side of justice. I'll go to law school. He went to law school. He, his wife, came back to South Carolina, raised their families. He can. He then practiced law private, privately for years. Then he ran for the bench. He became a circuit court judge. The county that he is in. Oh, sorry. He was the judge in the Michael Slager case. Remember Michael Slager, Slager who killed Walter Scott in North Charleston? Yeah, the judge was Clifton Newman. His daughter's a judge. Ran for office as a judge. He's known for calling it straight down the line when he can. He could not give this white boy the death penalty. Why? Because the prosecutors didn't ask for the death penalty. Now, that, according to the New York Times and all the reports, might have been the last exercise of Murdoch family power after generations going back to Reconstruction and before of running the damn county. Because Judge Newman is one of eight black circuit court judges in that county out of 48 in South Carolina. The jury that hung, that did not convict Michael Slager for killing Walter Scott, that jury was all white, except there was one black person. But that one black person was the foreman of the jury. Did what he could. Who made him the foreman? Judge Newman. <laughs> yeah, people, elections don't matter. He's elected judges and appointed judges. In the case of the Mardo case, you see that he was appointed to run everything related to the criminal prosecution of Alex Murdoch. But you have to understand that politics isn't about either or. Sometimes you got to use every tool in the drawer. So the reason he got the life sentence is probably some form of intellectual warfare between the white boys that say, yeah, he did it, and yeah, it was a tragedy, but you know, his people own everybody in this damn country. I'm not talking about black people now, I'm talking about white people. people so we ain't gonna kill him. So uh, look here, Newman, you can't do nothing but give him life. So what did Newman do? Gave him life and lectured the white boy from the bench. Oh, y'all go listen. Then you go listen to what Judge Newman did. Put on that white boy. I'm gonna end this. Took me four generations, but there is a river. Oh, there is. There is a river. The county that Judge Murdoch sits in is 35% black. And Judge, I'm sorry, Judge Newman. And Judge Newman noted that this man, father, grandfather, great grandfather, were judges. And these four white men, including this one that's now doing life, asked for the death penalty in that county 30 times between 1920 and 2016. And while South Carolina is about 27% black by the census, which means I know it's gotta be more than that, but 27% black, you know why? Because it was majority black until the great migration, at which point Negroes left South Carolina and it sold so many black people left South Carolina that even though the number is still high, it dropped. South Carolina is like the fifth largest black population in the country behind Mississippi, Louisiana, a couple other places. But Judge Newman reminded him, you've been doing this for a long time. And looking it up, 30 times these the Murdoch boys asked for the death penalty. And in South Carolina, which is about a third black, about 27% black, frankly. Half the people on death row are black. The reason Newman not joining them is probably because, probably because he was once a prominent South Carolina lawyer. And he's looking there like, I can't believe this American Negro the man over there on the left is like, well, shit, it's the world we live in now. 
And the man on the right is like, can't we do something? There was a time when we could have had them whipped. Can't we do something, Lindsay? Can't we do something? Ain't we got a good Negro, Tim? Tim Scott, don't you can't we do something? Tim, like, I can't help you, bro. This is another kind of black man. This is one of them Reconstruction Negroes on the bench. Going back to Vincent Harding. In October, Howard was on a tour. This is 1865 now. He done told, he about to go tell these black people, you can't have the land. Murdoch and his people coming back. And they're going to get the land. And they're going to reign over y'all like hell till one of y'all become a judge and put them in jail for the rest of their life. Because, see, the thing about white violence is it is not racially discriminatory. White people kill everything. I'm sorry, let me not do that. White people who embrace the kind of whiteness James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates and so many others have said is the cause of this cancer. So you can give up the whiteness at any time, y'all. Put the whiteness down. Just put it, take your hand off, back away from the whiteness. Was it Murdoch? I'm holding this whiteness with both hands. I'm killing everything. I'm killing your economic dreams. I'm stealing money by the millions. Oh, shit, they gonna catch me. They gonna catch me. Okay, let me kill the wife and son because, see, then maybe that'll throw them off the scent. <laughs> now, can I say a black did it? Well, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to do now. So I can't remember. But, oh, wait, arrested. Wait, what the hell? I bought all you. I own you. A black judge? Wait a minute. Hold on. Newman? There was a time when I could have had you whipped. Yeah, well, you're going to jail from now on. Why? I give you the death penalty, which Newman, when in interviews, previous interviews, has said, not in this case, but he, he struggled the first time he gave the death penalty because he said, I, I really don't know whether I believe, I don't really believe in it. In fact, I don't really believe in the death penalty, but it's the law. And the crimes committed by the cat who he gave his first death, sen death penalty sentence to was so heinous that he said, eh, if you got to give it, you got to give it. Okay, good. Now he thinks I'm good. So anyway, I won't go on. I want to mention this though. Just, he said, um, so he's got these people in this big church. 2,000 people come. Howard told the people that he, Howard that is, being their friend, had been sent by the president to tell them that the owners of the land, their old masters, you know, that, that uh, uh, let's call them the Murdoch generation, had been pardoned. And their plantations were to be given back to them. And that they wanted to come back to cultivate the land. And they would hire the blacks to work for them. See, it's the thing. They don't want the Negro to go. Won't you stay, stay, darling, <laughs> stay in my corner. Ooh. <laughs> no, black people are like, wait a minute. So you, this, my mama buried over there, her mother, her mother, her mother, all the way back to the damn boat y'all brought us over on. I can't, you won't give me the land that I'm the only one knows anything about any how to work this land here. And then you want, but you want me to stay and work for the guy that had the whip in his hand the whole time I'm telling you about. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. Your name Howard, right? Yeah. Oliver Howard? Yeah. Okay. You must be crazy. Howard thinking to himself, that's all right. That's all right. Because in 150 years, your great, 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 great grandchild going to be walking around with my name on her chest with a little Nike jump man on it celebrating the fact that she go to Howard. So, you know, you just wait because see the thing that we got that you don't got is the momentum of memory. But in that moment, of course, the Christian general, as he was known, is in the room. And he said, told the people that he being their friend, I'm your friend. <laughs> had been sent by the president to tell them that the owners of the land, their old masters had been pardoned. 
and their plantations would be given back to them and they wanted to come back to cultivate the land and would hire the blacks to work for them. How they gonna cultivate the land? They not cultivating the land, you cultivating the land. And by the way, Howard was their friend. Howard argued with General, I'm sorry, with President uh, Johnson. Howard ar argued, he tried his best to get them to help keep that land. So Howard was not a bad dude. But he didn't back away from the whiteness. And he's a military man. He got to do what they tell him to do. Whether it be tell these black people they can't get the land or chase Chief Seattle all the way to the Pacific Ocean. There's a reason I wear a whole lot of stuff with Howard's name on it. Because no institution is bigger than the people who are at the institution. So those of you who went to the school named for Henry Morehouse, Laura Spellman, Rockefeller, Clinton B. Fisk, <laughs> another Civil War general, I understand. Oliver Otis Howard. I get it. I ain't got no beef with anybody repping those names because we didn't black the hell out of all of them up. But, you know, those of us who have taken on directive and responsibility from previous generations. So when you see me, you can't see John Henry Clark anymore with your eyes. You can't see Jacob Carruthers with your eyes anymore. You can't see Anderson Thompson or Conrad World with your eyes anymore. You can't see Joseph Benyakinen with your eyes anymore. You can't see John Bracey with your eyes anymore. You can't see or feel McDonald or Jamie Williams with your eyes anymore. But when you see me, you see them. So there's a certain responsibility. So, you know, Black Studies Matter. Because these are the students at Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So I rep what I can because as Professor Hunter has been able to add this to an expanding repertoire of platform that interacts with and reaches more and more people by the minute, by the hour, by the day, by the month, the week and the month and the year. We have to understand that if we're in a space like that, we begin to make inroads. And when we make inroads, it can literally transform lives because we know we're not alone and we know we have points of entry. So let me wrap this up with General Howard, who was fighting. I ain't mad at General Howard. He was only following orders. How many times have we heard that? He says, Vincent Harding, that is, this was the message borne by their friend. <laughs> this is I love Vincent Harding. Love that brother. When you see me, you see him too. And Mama Rosemary Harding. I got a chance to spend some time with both of them out in Denver. One time, a long time, myself, uh, Aisha Amani, uh, Erica Asakoye, she and her husband, Josic, and their son now in Kenya, um, living in Kenya. And so, you know, the Hardings, you know, this is the poetry of Vincent Harding. Let me return to page 319, in chapter 16 of There is a River. He says, Vincent Harding writes, this was a message borne by their friend. Naturally, it outraged the black people who had been cultivating the land for generations, and they had now begun to work for and govern themselves. Read my friend Catherine Frankie's book, Repair. As soon as the Negroes found out the war was in, 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 in full swing and they no longer worked on those plantations, they freed themselves. And guess what they did? One of the first things they did was smash all the cotton gins. No more picking, they said. Literally, it's in the documents. No more picking. They smashed the cotton gins. Then he turned around and started planting potatoes and corn and stuff to eat, right? Subsistence. We, you know, and then as the, 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 the Confederate, I mean, the, the Union Army comes in, so we need you to keep growing cotton. They're like, really? Why? Why? Because we need the, the money for the war effort. What we get? Well, we'll, we'll let y'all farm and you'll get the land. Okay. And as one of the brothers told one of the white soldiers, according to a white school teacher, uh, in uh, Catherine Frankie's book, she quotes the correspondence. She says, the teacher overheard this conversation between one of the brothers who worked as an enslaved person now working for himself, negotiating for money to farm cotton now. I love this. I love this. This is, this is attested to in this document. The teacher says, 
the white man asks this brother, Sambo, why do you work harder now? I hate that Sambo was the name. God only knows the governance, what he, what he was called. Sambo, why do you work harder now than you did during slavery? The brother looked at the white man and said, we used to work for the lash. Now he works for the cash. <laughs> anyway, but now here come Howard telling him, you can't have the land, but you can stay here and work for wages. I know these white boys. I've known them my whole life. Oh, you are a friend, though. You are a friend. Vincent Harding writes, they had trusted Howard and his more courageous assistant, General Rufus Saxton, and the other white and black friends who had assured them that their government would be fair, that the land would be theirs. Now, angry shouts of no, no, erupted immediately. Chilling cries, anguished moans broke out everywhere in the building. Coming to a landing here in Vincent Harding, some person sprang up to leave, refusing to hear such an insult to their intelligence, their trust, their hope. One black man shouted from the balcony. Why, General Howard? Why do you take away our lands? You take them from us who are true, always true to the government. You give them to our all-time enemies that is not right i want to revisit all-time enemies all-time enemies i listened to some of the oral arguments before the supreme court trying to give standing to these confederates these neo-confederates trying to prevent the cancellation of student debt and i heard a strain of all-time enemies not just enemies grounded in race, but enemies grounded in a philosophy of hatred and fear that engenders the kind of violences, physical, economic, cultural, political violences that prevent us from building a different society if we allow it. I listened to some of the speeches, a few of them, that are currently unfolding not far from here at the Conservative Political Action Committee meeting. I think Donald Trump speaks today. Now they got rid of one of the more obvious racists. They expelled him for being anti-Semitic. You know, the one was down there with uh, Kanye West at Mar-a-Lago a few months ago. But when you hear the ones they didn't expel, I don't hear a difference at all, you see. And so, all-time enemies, not just enemies of race, enemies of our common humanity, enemies of our common humanity. Everybody getting loan forgiveness and ain't going to be black. That all-time enemies thing that Vincent Harding wrote resonates with me. And you can put the whiteness down. Prof, I'm going to interject something right quick, a little two-minute story that happened to me earlier this week. It was Monday, I think. Yeah, it was Monday because by crack of dawn Tuesday, I'm on campus. Uh, on Monday morning, I was reading the paper at a local business establishment. I'll name it Panera Bread, one of the Panera locations. And it was a brother sitting in the booth behind me with his head on the table. I had my coffee. He had his coffee. And I heard, maybe about, I've been sitting there 20 minutes, and I heard this. Now, you know what that is. If you black in America and you hear at your door and you open it and it's your cousin, 
or your uncle or your auntie or something, the question you might ask is, why are you knocking on my door like the police? Okay, this, this, see, when you hear that pop, 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 this is not the tick, 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 or this is the pop, 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 like the damn police. I heard pop, pop, pop. So immediately, what the? It was the manager. You can't sleep in here. Okay. Now, this is a scenario where a lot of times folk who you might think might not be in the best economic position in their lives find a place. They, you know, you'll get some coffee or they'll sit there. You know, ain't bother nobody. But you know, people make distinctions. Instead of forcing this government, state, local, and federal government to provide for people and create a different floor under them. By the way, uh, we know that there are elections in Chicago. Paul Vallis riding on a white nationalist ticket of public safety, even though uh, about 40% of all the violence that happens in Chicago in terms of physical violence, gun violence being the most prominent, takes place in about 4% of the city. Uh, Paul Vallis, who I know well, because Paul Vallis was a superintendent of schools in Philadelphia, messing them up, privatizing so much before he then went down at the behest of the capitalists, same kind of people who spent black people's money in the Freedmen Bureau Bank to New Orleans after Katrina, when they privatized the entire public education system, turned into Charles, he went down and messed that up. Then he went to Connecticut and messed up that uh, school system before returning ultimately to Illinois and Chicago, where he lives out side of Chicago, but now he's running for mayor of Chicago for the second time, memory serves me correctly. Paul Vallis, who began his career as an educator after uh, the president of the United States at the time, 44th president, appointed his basketball buddy. I'm sorry, he played basketball with him. The guy had other credentials, of course, but, you know, his basketball buddy, Arnie Duncan, as secretary of education, thereby overlooking or not choosing better, not overlooking, looking at and deciding against maybe a Linda Darling Hammond or, you know, as a secretary of education. No, well, my, my buddy, he knows what to do. And this is the race to the top, the kind of neoliberal approach to public education as well. You know, if you race to the top, it's going to leave a whole lot of people at the bottom. There's a top and a bottom in education. Well, that's that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. yeah. But at any rate, uh, Arnie Duncan, who, of course, the secretary of education at uh, secretary of education at any, any time because of the federal charter of Howard University serves as an ex officio member of the Howard University Board of Trustees. Well, Arnie Duncan, of course, is no longer the secretary of education. He uh, So he's not an ex officio member of Howard University Board of Trustees. It was announced yesterday, day before yesterday, actually, that Arnie Duncan has now joined the Howard University Board of Trustees as an official trustee. They don't have to put him on there now. They wanted to put him on there. But at any rate, when Duncan left Chicago running the schools, playing basketball with his buddy, he was replaced by Paul Vallis, by Daly, then Mayor Daly, Daly the Younger. You know, well-meaning, I don't know, Rahm Emanuel, well-meaning, I don't know, and Lori Lightfoot, well-meaning, I don't know, whatever. But Arnie Duncan, you know, so we have Paul Vallis, we have, uh, uh, what's his name? We have Daly to thank for that, you understand? Daly the Younger, Richard Daly, who appointed Paul Vallis. Well, Vallis is back, he's running for mayor, but his opponent, after uh, Lightfoot came in, I think, third. But in the runoff, because nobody got 50%, Vallis is like 30, 35% or something like that. The second place person who can now become the mayor of Chicago, this brother Brandon Johnson, started his public, started his professional career as a middle school teacher in the, in the Cambrini Green Projects. He said, every day my students looked out the window and saw the wealth of downtown Chicago and behind them, they saw the wrecking balls. 
as they tore down the projects. As Living Color said, you can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. Yeah, the living conditions were terrible, but the family tried to stick together. And if you want to solve the problems of Chicago, like any other community, you got to come in and understand the community there. And so with Brandon Johnson, a school teacher, member of the Chicago unions who is backing him heavily while Paul Vallis is running on a campaign of fear, put the whiteness down, Paul. You ain't going to do it. You're going to hold it tighter, which is why you're going to be wiped, wiped from the face of the electoral map if enough people come out and vote for Brandon Johnson. Uh, Roland Martin interviewed Brandon Johnson the other day, and I asked him a question. It was on Thursday night when I'm usually on. And he was talking about the fact he has based his billion-dollar economic plan for Chicago on a document. Where is that document? I could have swore I pulled it out so I could remind us because when you go back into our um, if you when you go back into our archive, you'll see us talk about it. I know I pulled it. I just don't know what I did with it. Oh, here it is. Yeah. He said, I based my economic plan on this. Remember we talked about the freedom budget? Yes. <laughs> Brandon Johnson. Have you talked to him yet, Prof? I've not. Uh, just, you know, this just happened last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happened. Yeah, just I mean, happened last week. So I'm, um, and I, you know, I have experience with Paul Vallis because I covered education for the Daily News editorial page for a number of years. And he seemed like a very affable, well-meaning guy back then. But as I said on the radio this week, you know, I've changed, so my perspective on everything has changed. And perhaps as he, you know, heads into his 60th, uh, you know, heading pushing into 70. Uh, he has changed. He's come, you know, he's turned in probably to his father, his grandfather. So uh, I'm looking forward to having a conversation to see. Um, so yeah. yes, he's on my list. And Good. Brandon Good. is as well. Both of them. Both right. of them. Both of them. Yeah. Vallis and, and yeah, like I say, Vallis is an interesting guy. Like you say, very affable, clearly very bright, you know, disruptor, outside the box thinker. It's a lot of them around. Wayne Shorter, in fact. It was often referred to as an outside-the-box speaker. In fact, one of the musicians he played with, by the way, Wayne Shorter, just 30 seconds, really cut his eye teeth on Charlie Parker and Charles Mingus and Dizzy Gillespie and them. He played with Miles Davis. He, he really entered with Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock, who calls him his best friend, Herbie Hancock, in the electric period of Miles. And Miles Davis, one of the last things he said to a musician before he made transition, he made transition a couple of weeks after putting his hands on Wayne Shorter's shoulders and said, you need to be known. You need to be out there. You need to be, people need to be exposed because Wayne Shorter was considered to be, and you know, do these the, put the article the, but Herbie Hancock, so many others, he's the guy. Herbie Hancock said Wayne Shorter had the entire history of jazz in his head and it would come out in his music. So then here, he, of course, in his next phase, he combined uh, to create Weather Report, co create Weather Report. So he's kind of that fusion era thing. And then he comes in, he played on Steely Dan. He played on Johnny Mitchell, like 10 of her albums. I mean, when, we don't know Wayne Shorter like we should, in part because Wayne Shorter was all about the, the music, the genealogy, the movement, and he embraced Buddhism um, kind of midway through his life. He was a practicing Buddhist the rest of his life. And so as I finished, I just mentioned some of these things. Wayne Shorter is an example of that kind of expansive kind of thinking. And one of the musicians said, I forget which one said it now, said of Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter, he does think outside the box, but he's so far outside the box, I'm not even sure that he ever knew there was a box. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Wayne Shorter is just, you know what I'm saying? Paul Ballas is an outside the box thinker, a disruptor. And some people 
who were born in the box, who think they're thinking outside the box, sometimes it's that Urkel thing. Did I do that? Yeah, you did that. Came to Philadelphia and pushed along with this board at the time to sell the public school building in downtown Philadelphia and rent the former Philadelphia Inquirer uh, paper print printing plant, which is a genius move because what that does is, wait, what does it do? Oh, it gives the developers the building that was built for public education during the Works Progress Administration. And now you go in the parkway, you got the rodent up there, you got the, 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 the museum, the big museum after they broke the will of Alfred Barnes and brought it from the suburbs now, Alfred Barnes spinning his grave. So you got all this multi-billion dollars of art collection across the parkway. You have the building that was built for public education, which is now condominiums. Paul Ballas, privatizing, you know, because it's good. Yeah, business and media, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. Okay, Paul, I saw Paul Ballas up close many years from Freedom Schools because they ran the previous superintendent, another white man, in the Charles Sumner vein, I would say, uh, David Hornbeck, who is still around. They got him out of there. Why? Because, well, anyway, that's a story for another day. We had to talk about that another day. But, but the bottom line is Ballas was the man for the time. Privatization is the, is the way we go. I have no doubt Paul Ballas think he's doing the best thing, but he also knows you can't get elected in Chicago unless you run up the white nationalist flag if you're if you white. And he has he, he's a pragmatist. I want to get elected. So now the police union has endorsed him, even as Johnson is saying, you don't fight crime by hiring more police. Plus, first of all, because, you know, he was on the um, what they call it, Cook County Commission. Johnson was. He says it takes almost two years, a year and a half to hire, train police. He said even Paul Val is going to tell him I'm going to hire a thousand more police. No, you're not. You're not hiring police. You're hiring cadets. What the hell is he talking about? He said. This is how you address it. You address it by fixing the other problems. That's why I base my thing on the freedom budget. And when it comes to police, very directly, we're going to hire more young people, more young people from the community. We're going to go through different types of training, different types of selection process. There's a way to dismantle this. It's not going to be overnight, but he's lying to y'all. But I understand why Paul Bowles would do that because I saw him up close. Now, you know, people have accused me of having uh, adult ADHD. So I know kind of what it looks like up close. Anyway, Paul Ballas, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, me and Paul Ballas have, yeah, we have a great conversation. Why? Because when you take off in the stratosphere, you looking like, man, I'm up in the stratosphere. What is that above me? Me. So let's keep talking. <laughs> I, we can go as fast or as slow as you want because we can fast as fast as we want. Your flow is great. Or then again, in the words of Biggie, my slow flow remarkable. I can go slow. Uh-oh, March 9th. Ain't that Biggie's birthday? Lord, we coming up on... Christopher Wallace. But at any rate, yeah, as I was saying, the whole idea of political intervention in this country goes in cycles. And here we'll kind of bring it together and, and close it out. Political intervention, while we're engaged in electoral politics, while we're engaged in trying to change things in terms of the political system, the economic system, do we invest? Do we create our own banks? Well, the Freedmen's Bank would have worked, probably, maybe, Douglas say. We have to remind, remind ourselves that human beings are the ones who make change. And sometimes the spaces we create, like this space, which adds to those spaces over the years that aren't, a, this isn't a space for attracting very highly trained people and small, tight, closely argued and reasoned and debated, exclusive, inbred dialogue masquerading as freeing us. No, that's what academic conferences do. Everybody talks about the stuff. It's a panel of four people. There are eight people in the room. It's intense debate. People feel good about themselves and then go off to dinner on the budget, the university budget or the grant they got. 
But how did that free us? I don't know, but it freed me. I feel really great. Yeah, I'm going to get this paper published. And then how it's going to free people? Well, the 15 people are going to read it. It's going to really feel good too. Okay. But this ain't that. This is all of us bringing our talents, our gifts, as you say, Prof, our bricks into the space. And having done that, we're in a space that allows us to think about what we can do. And then we go out in the world one in one way we can come together and do projects like monday night when we were talking every monday every day in nubia these conversations about what we can do and come together and do things and then in the much wider sense whether we participate in anything directly related to nubia or not we know how we can think about intervening in the day-to-day -day of our lives monday i was in there reading the paper the brother is sitting there he hears as do i i hear the manager say you can't sleep here and i'm thinking man this is this is the intersection of poverty. This is the end of this is what Brandon Johnson ultimately is talking about. And anybody who gets into politics for the right reasons and who stays in politics for the right reasons, who doesn't go beholding to the funders, who doesn't go beholding, but tries to stay true to that message. So I'm sitting there like, let me just lean back and listen. So the guy, the brother says, who's sitting there said, I wasn't asleep. I had my head down. And I had seen him with his head down, but I seen him with his head up too. Who knows where this man slept the night before? He had a bike, one of them little fold-up bikes. It wasn't a cheap bike. I'm saying, where'd he get it? But of course, he had a bag that looked like maybe that's everything he has in his life. Or maybe not, but it's right there. Had on a coat. It wasn't that cold. I'm saying, is he wearing stuff? Because he, you know, I don't know. He's a text. We're all a text. Because I'm dressed closer to him than I am to somebody with a tie around their neck going to, you know, Howard's Charter Day. So I don't, you know, I never judge what people have on. You know, never. It's quiet now. Go back to reading. And here they come. You know who's coming, Pry. Who comes about 10 minutes later? The Popo. As the manager hides in the back, here come the four white boys. The police. Four of them. Four oh, four, of course. Of course. And probably another four or five or six or seven or eight million somewhere circling. Waiting for the call. Here they come with the verbal equivalent of, All right, sir, can we see somebody? You know, that, 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 that the thing that's up in the upper register of your mouth. You know, Dr. Amon's uh, mother is a dialect coach and a dramatist. She's a faculty member at Howard. So she teaches dialect. You know, she she tells Dr. Sinyata's mama? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, good people. You know, oh, ask her about it when you talk to her tomorrow. Oh, no. oh yeah. my gosh, we are so amazing. Good people, no question. My mother's brilliant, a dramatist, culture worker, and uh, more specifically, like they just did a production, in fact, where, you know, she's one of the dialect because she helps them. What's the accent? Where you from? You know, what region of the country? Which language? That kind of thing. So you see the apple don't fall no far from the tree. So, but it's the, it's in the, I right, see some, see some ID, see some ID. So I was like, what you want? He's loud. Okay, this is a man who's used to probably me, maybe being roused, I'm thinking. I'm sitting maybe half a foot. I'm in this booth. He's in the booth behind me. So he's sitting. We're back to back. I'm sitting looking this way. He's sitting looking this way. Here come the damn police. I lean back. Now I'm listening. And of course, you know what happens when the police show up. Everybody in there. Now it's theater. Now you got to be real careful. Because black people have to know the social structure. White people don't. These, these white boys are oblivious. I mean, they know they're surrounding, but black people in there, we know this could go any kind of way. Should I put up my phone? Should I tape? No, not yet. Let me wait. 
Plus, I'm counting on the fact that there'll be somebody else in here that will put their phone as far away from ground zero. I'm at ground zero with this brother. And I'm telling you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to leave him. Governance. Who are we to each other? All time enemies. Come on, Vincent Harding. So anyway, these play. Uh, since my D. Hmm. I, like, I, I ain't doing nothing. I, I bought something. And he did. He's a paying customer. The manager, a tower, really a, a tower of strength and good character, hiding in the back. Six police on this brother. I'm on him in a moment. So I'm listening. They ask him again. Sir, we need to see some ID. The brother says, he came over here slamming on the table. Sir, you were called here because, you know, you clearly... Uh, are sitting here, but you know, people are not comfortable. He said the guy came over here and pound on the table. So before this first little cop repeats what he said, I said, excuse me, officer. He did come over here pounding on the table. Sounded like y'all. I'm gonna enter this very carefully. Because now we gotta negotiate. We're negotiating with the social structure. Yeah, yeah, he can't sound like y'all. Now they're looking at me. I said, now you've expanded your field. Can you get the cuffs on me? Do you need to ask me for some ID? And I said to the brother, I said, bruh, just lower your voice, man. Remember, our job at this point is to survive the encounter. Yeah, I'm letting you know, because I know you want your little sensitivity training or whatever, but I'm letting you know this man not alone, and we're not going to be victims in here. And I'm letting the people in the room know. Somebody pull out their phone. Let's go get the videotape. Yeah, just lower your voice, bruh. No, because even I said, look, man, we know that, but that ain't about this right now. We'll deal with him in a minute. Okay. Now I'm talking to the manager who's sick to police. By the way, the manager was black. Anyway, so yeah, you sick to police. You put these police on us? That could be you. Anyway, I'll get this short. So now your brother starts kind of breathing. Because the other thing I did is by disrupting that. You're not going to escalate it. Y'all come in here with your manhood and your vest, which you like you in Chicago PD and you got, you know, ID. I see your ID all over your body. I'm not judging. I'm assessing what you got on and how you came up in here striding like this bonanza or some shit. All time enemies. Come on, Vincent Hardy. Anyway, the point is, at this point, I come out the booth and walk around because now I'm going to look for him. Where the guy? So I walk around and I come back around behind the police because now I'm looking for the manager. Why are you sick the police on this brother? But I'm not leaving him. And what do I hear, Professor Hunter? Oh, no, no, no. I look around. This big brother stands up, approaches me. Got the car. I said, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Nubian. Professor Hunter, I'm going to tell you the importance of this. Come thing. on. I'm a Nubian. I work for D.C. Works for the city government. He said, what the hell's going on? I said, I don't know, man. This is some bullshit. I, can't, I see the boy. I said, I see you. I said, why don't you come over here? Now another cop ear hustling with us says, oh, don't call him over here. He ain't got nothing to do with it. So me and this brother come back around to the police and say, and I say to the police, I said, sir, you just trying to do your job. He said, we need some ID. From I said, yeah, you just trying to do your job. I said, but let me just explain to you very quickly what's going on here. That man sicked y'all on him. And you know what that means? That means that you just doing your job 
you got to ask yourself a question at this moment. You going to put this man in cuffs and become famous? Because I guarantee you right now, somebody take him. And think about all the occasions when the thing goes left. Is it really worth your morning to become famous? The biggest of the cops ain't said nothing. He looks at me. Yeah. Because see now, Michael, Michael McDonald said, you don't know me, but I'm your brother. Not the cop, the black man. I was raised here in this living hell. Yeah. Now, now the line for the cop, you don't know my kind in your world. Very soon the time will tell. Now, uh-huh. And you. Oh, Paul Vallis, all you damn politicians telling me the things you're going to do for me. <laughs> mm -mm. You think I ain't paying attention? I ain't blind, but I don't like what I think I see. Taking it to the street. We in the street right now. The social structure. The Nubian brother. I know you, brother. Me and my daughter watch y'all every Saturday in there right now. Shout out to y'all. We watching. He might be in the chat. If you in the chat, let people know. I ain't trying to put out your business in the street. That's the reason I ain't it. But So we sitting there. We're standing there. Now we negotiating. Now this brother, he the biggest dude in the whole thing. He puts his hand on the cop's shoulder. See, let me tell y'all about black men and women, but brothers. Mm. Bruh, you know, when you put your hand on a cop chest, now we all about to be kung fu fighting. This is about to be something else. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and they got guns, but the cop doesn't win stuff because we didn't talk to him in a way as a point of entry. Let him know you need to de-escalate, step away from the whiteness. Because see that man right there who you thought you was just, you and all four of y'all with your beer muscles and all your buddies surrounding this like this is the gunfight at the go OK Corral. It's a morning, y'all get y'all jollies in a little bit. The man that call who's sitting back there scared to come out because he didn't use you as a weapon. Well, guess what? This man not alone. And there's several conversations going on right now. There's a governance conversation who we are to each other, it includes the manager, this brother right here who's a Nubian, this brother sitting right here, and everybody else in here who is black, and a few allies if they're here. And then there's a social structure conversation. That's the one we're talking about now, because our objective is to make sure this man is not harmed. The, the cop that's been doing most of the talk, talking, he says, well, uh, you should see, see some ID. So the man comes out of his, he pulls a wallet out. He opens his wallet. He got a debit card or credit card. I don't know which one. He has a state-issued ID and some other things. He pulls ID and shows it. He looks, huh? Yeah. You can't you can't tell nothing by looking at how this man is dressed. This man got, he said, then, then the cop says, well, you know, we have to, we, we just, we just try to do our job. Mm -hmm. Nope, no problem. Do what you got to do. But I know that had nobody said anything, that man probably would have been arrested. So to end the story, the brother sitting there, he said, man, they called police on me. I said, I know, brother. Just we standing, me and the other brother. It's all right. Just just relax. He said, well, and it was an African. He don't mean African the way we mean African, the way I mean it. He meant a continental African. And I know the brother who's the manager was not. If he was born and raised in the United States, he might be first generation. I don't know whether he's from the Caribbean or where he's from the continent. I've never asked him, but from listening to him, he might be might be from the continent. I mean, from, from the continent or Caribbean, either way, it doesn't matter. My point is this. I said, yeah, brother. But to them, 
if he was sitting here and the brother finished the sentence, he said, yeah, it would have been him. I said, that's right. Ain't no distinction made. Ain't no distinction made. It's try call quest. I mean, try call quest. Q-tip said black is black. <laughs> In other words, you call the police on somebody that could have been you. And so anyway, long story short, we finished. I finished this. The look, the cop said, well, I have to write you uh, a citation and they want you banned permanently from the store. Man sitting there. So I said, you got to ban him from the store? He said, that's what they want. I said, no problem. Then I guess they banned me too. I won't be spending no more money up in here in no time soon. Meanwhile, I look around to see, I suspect there are a couple of cameras being filmed, filmed for this. Now, I could have called and complained to this particular companion and named this man. And now he in a world of trouble. Now, do I want to do that to another black man, to another person who's probably got a, who's got a family, maybe, who whatever? I don't want to do that. But the fact of the matter is you use waste as a weapon against this other black person. And this man could have got arrested or worse because I know they ain't the four of them just ain't sitting in there. If he had kept being loud, it would have been circled around there. So they gave him a little funky ass piece of paper and they say to him, uh, one of the cops, now he's trying to, you know, manage himself a little bit. He says, well, you know, there, there, there's a, there's free, there's free breakfast around the corner and the brother gets a little loud again. He says, oh, no free breakfast. I don't need no charity. And I said, uh, Arthur, the man showed you his ID. Didn't you see the card in his in his wallet? I said, I wouldn't make any assumptions how much money you got. I said, you're a public servant. He might have more money than you. <laughs> what was the citation for? To put paper on him. Yeah, but, but but don't you have to have a re? I mean, you know, legally, don't you have to have a reason to give like sitting well sleep in a in a Panera's is not illegal, is it? Well, I doubt it, but given the city ordinances, maybe and you know whether it be Montgomery County or D.C. Because you saw uh, uh, Joe Biden went to uh, said he gonna veto the changes in the D.C. criminal code this week and set off a lot of things. But what people need to understand is that Joe Biden said he wants to veto the codes. Guess who also says she doesn't support it? Muriel Bowser. See, when you're the black mayor of D.C., see, when you are at the behest of developers, then you have to make choices. And part of things, they probably got some little funky little so civil code. It's like having a um, air freshener in your car, which is illegal. So it's like, like most people don't know that having an air freshener hanging over your rearview mirror is illegal, that they can pull you over and give you a ticket for that. Most exactly. people don't know that. Exactly. Okay. And, and, and if you're sitting there, he may not have violated any ordinance, but the fact of the matter, it won't be about that. It'll be about the fact that whenever odd day, time, someplace he can't get to or hard to get to or he got to show up for something else and doesn't appear. Now they put a warrant. I mean, oh, you know what I'm saying? It's about getting paper on him, as we know. Right. And so the cops leave. But by then, another brother has come over to join us. And I will name this brother because he, when you see me, you see him as well. This is Dr. Jarawa Hunter, many years uh, on the faculty of Howard University. Every time I see Baba Jawara, uh, his wife Aziza, who is a major artist uh, from Philly, you know, they're part of the African Center Network, African Center Schools and, and, and programs, just incredible culture keepers. Uh, their daughter is how I met them many years ago when I first came to Howard. Well, almost. I've been there 23 years now, so maybe about 20 years ago. Their daughter, Noah, who also works in the areas that is a is one of my former students and a friend there. Um, uh, one time son-in-law, um, Yofis Zinyo, my friend, also an educator, one of my former students. His father was one of Kwame Nkrumah's architects uh, in Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana, Ghana's birthday coming up. Yes. Anyway, 
ancestors of he's an ancestor now victor zizinho very powerful anyway uh so baba jawara i see him like maybe halfway through the story i should have added he came over so he's there too the three of us black men got these cops surrounded and so in he's standing there so i just came over to make sure yeah but what you doing you reading so we talked for an hour after that and then when i got up i went as we, we we got ready to leave i got up and went over and said well i guess i won't be seeing y'all for a while since that brother's banned i guess i'm banned too and the black dude still hadn't come out from the back man you should say it with your chest the cop gonna tell me don't bring him over here he using you as a weapon you about to be famous you ready <laughs> for your close-up in the long uh running show called all time enemies <laughs> yeah you're, you're you're next so but the whole point of that story in addition to just the context of it is the fact that we don't know what this space enables engenders emboldens strengthens and community always is the way that you can intervene in ways large and small it isn't just about winning mayoral elections winning elections at the country level you know the nigerian elections finally settled as we talked about monday night or unsettled as such peter obi didn't win tanubu won uh bubakar you know is, is is comes in second i guess and and i was in the uh, barbershop the other day and the ghanaians and the nigerians were talking about you know free and fair elections stacy abrams was over there observing right the observers then said the election was foul you got Republican senators in the United States telling the United States government, Blinken and them, don't allow them to certify this election because you're not standing with the Nigerians around democracy. Well, the Republicans are right on this one. Of course, right for the wrong reasons. They're just trying to figure out a way to embarrass Joe Biden. But the point is that wherever it is, at the country level, the state level, the local level, or sitting somewhere where you see somebody in trouble, you intervene and you're not alone. And that, and that was a case where Nubia helped intervene for a brother who maybe not registered for Nubia, but it don't matter to he, if he's registered for Nubia or not. Um, I want to just mention a couple of other things before we we get out of here. Um, a couple of days ago is the anniversary of Colette Coven getting thrown off the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And... I pulled the book that, you know, which is a great children's book. But we always talk about it, you know, many times we, we looked at this book. Claudette Colvin, Twice Toward Justice, Philip Noose's book. I love the description from March 1955, March the 2nd. She said, watch this now. Miss Nesbitt. I want to shout out Miss Nesbitt. Geraldine Nesbitt. That's Claudette, that's Claudette Colvin's favorite teacher. There she is. Geraldine Nesbitt. She said, Claudette Coleman, right at the end of my sophomore year in high school, the Supreme Court ruled that public schools like ours would have to be integrated, though they didn't say when. Whenever it happened, it was bound to be a big change. Segregation was so total. It wasn't just that we went to separate schools. We even talked, walked to school on opposite sides of the highway from whites, shouting, <laughs> shouting insults at each other across the street. In class, we asked each other, would you want to sit next to a white student? A lot of kids said things like, if they don't want to sit next to me on a bus, why would I want to sit next to one in the class? Governance. Who are we to each other? These are the conversations we have to have, y'all, because we have not abandoned that determination to stand in our dignity. Those brothers and sisters, 2,000 of them that surrounded Oliver Howard there on the Disto Island, in the Low Country, in the Sea Islands, 
and told him while they were in the back trying to negotiate a way to tell. And he said, I heard Vincent Harding said, uh, while Howard had taken one or two Negro leaders in the back and tried to tell them, tell the rest of them to calm down, somebody started a song in the chamber. And before you know it, it had drowned out the conversation they were trying to have in the back. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. They singing that, 2,000 people. Well, guess what? That sentiment, the betrayal, that led to the formation of the foundation of what now becomes the modern state of South Carolina with generational white supremacy. Finally cut off by a black judge who grew up in that segregated community in South Carolina who said, I'm going to do something for my people. I don't condemn that judge for having the string around his neck. He might not be able to tell you why the string around his neck is either, but he remembered that suit that his daddy bought him when he was little when he played a, a, a black lawyer in the case that broke the back of segregation in part in South Carolina, Briggs versus Elliott. Well, all-time enemies. This is what this young girl, teenager, sophomore in high school, Claudette Colvin, when polled by her teachers and their teachers about the end of their segregated school, now the right papers and academic crowd will say the end of segregation was very important and it was in terms of legal segregation but as Du Bois said once you end legal segregation you got the real issue which is questions of race and color what you going to do now the laws have changed but how are you going to build institutions Claudette Colvin's classmates was like if they don't want to sit next to me on a bus why would I want to sit next to one in class Claudette Colvin said I felt differently blackness the kaleidoscope of blackness who are we to each other Claudette Colvin said I wanted to go to college I wanted to grow up and greet the world, and so did my best friends. I thought if whites came into our schools, maybe our textbooks would improve. You see the connection? It ain't this color of the skin, it's the color of the money. If you come, maybe the textbooks will come. Well, guess what? They ain't come to your school. You went to their school. I did indeed. Thank you, Professor Hunter. Episode 40. So when you go to uh, number 40 and in class, that's 112, 13, 14, 15 episodes ago, you'll see us talking about Claudette Colvin. So let me let me just clean this up. Go back to go to go to uh, number 40 and you'll see. And she talks about. When she would babysit white children, she would see the books in their libraries at their homes and they would see these. She said, I want these books, too. I want these books. She said, our school's entire set of encyclopedias only had two articles about blacks. Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver goes on. Anyway, Miss Nebbit made us see that we had a history, too. I'm going to end this in about two minutes. She said, I had Miss Nesbitt in both 10th and 11th grades. And during these years, I grew in confidence. She said, Miss Nesbitt, there's no such thing as good hair. Hair is just hair. Everyone's born with the hair they have, and you just do the best you can with it. Another teacher, Miss Josie Lawrence, she was her history teacher. She said she was the blackest teacher in the whole school, but she had the same attitude. Miss Lawrence said, quote, I'm a real African. I'm a pure-blooded African, end quote. She said she was proud of it. She taught us all the different nations of Africa and the periods of African history. It all made sense to me. I wasn't ashamed of my thick lips and broad nose and coarse hair. I, I had always thought God made our futures so that we would be comfortable in the hot African sun. Now, all right, y'all, AP class, all this stuff they're talking about, we got to change the curriculum. You need to go back and look at what those black teachers were doing in those black schools and what they do every day. Not just black teachers, but certainly black teachers during this period because the schools are more segregated now than they were even then because we still haven't answered Du Bois' question, but that's part of the work we're doing here. She says, little by little, uh, I began to form a mission for myself. I was going to be like Harriet Tubman and go north to liberate my people. Goes on. She says, in 1955, now we're coming to March the 2nd, my junior year, Miss Nesbitt and Miss Lawrence team taught Negro History Week. Team taught it. We really got into it. We spent the whole February talking about it, right? She said, when my moment came, I was ready. 
March the 2nd, 1955, she got into that window seat on the left side of the Highland, Highland Gardens bus at Dexter Avenue and Bainbridge Street. Yeah, Dexter Avenue, as in the church Martin Luther King preached that. The bus went east on Dexter Avenue. This white lady came up standing in the aisle, wanted her to get up. Claudette Coleman says the motor man looked up in his mirror and said, I need those seats. I might have considered getting up if the woman had been elderly, but she wasn't. She looked about 40. The other three girls in my row got up and moved back, but I didn't. I just couldn't. Finally, I'll end with this. Claudette Coleman said, rebellion was on my mind that day. All during February, we had been talking about people who had taken stands. We had been studying the Constitution in Miss Nesbitt's class. I knew I had rights. I had paid my fare, the same as white passengers. Goes on, goes on. The motorman yelled again louder. Why are you still sitting there? I didn't get up, but I didn't answer him. It got real quiet on the bus. A white rider yelled from the front. You got to get up, all-time enemies, Panera. A girl named Margaret Johnson answered from the back. She ain't got to do nothing but stay black and die. The white woman kept standing over my seat. The driver shouted, give me that seat. Then get up, gal. I stayed in my seat. I didn't say a word. The rest of it, y'all can go to uh, number 40. But that was March 2nd, 1955. And I wanted to mention it because, you know, we're living in a moment when the momentum of memory serves us. March 2nd, 1955. A hundred years, two years later, March 1957, the Montgomery bus boycott has been had. Rosa Parks becomes the face of it. Martin King is launched into that. And in March 1957, this week coming up, 1957, a hundred years after March 1857 in the United States with Dred Scott, Martin and Coretta King are standing in Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah, who went to school at Lincoln University, HBCU, historically black college and university, not predominantly black, because it was uh, segregated as well, Lincoln of Pennsylvania. Kwame Nkrumah, Nandi Zikiwe, the first prime ministers of Ghana and Nigeria, respectively. Nigeria, 1960, Ghana, 1957. The kings are there at the inauguration of Kwame Nkrumah as the first elected leader of Ghana. And shortly thereafter, another sister goes to Ghana. And in 1961, she tells the story of the birth of the new country of Ghana from colony to republic in the first volume of Law in Africa, volume one, number one, the Constitution and Government of Ghana. That would be Polly Murray. That's Polly Murray's book, Law in Africa. She teaches on faculty at the University of Ghana and with Leslie Rubin, she writes the Constitution and Government of Ghana in 1961. And in this document, now I won't read from it today. I'll just say that the Constitution of Ghana had a rule in it and said Ghana has a sovereign country. It is independent. The only way it will give up any portion of its sovereignty would be to yield to the concept of the United States of Africa. That's very powerful. I did want to say a few words about that today because, you know, Ghana right now is finding itself over a barrel. They owe billions of dollars in debt. Um, they owe like China almost two billion dollars. It's a third of their bilateral debt that they owe. Um, and in talking to the brothers yesterday, 
we were talking about the Nigerian elections, but also what's going on in Ghana, whose elections are in a couple of years. And the brother said, when the brother said, you know, the Chinese want the airport and the seaport in exchange for debt forgiveness. I said, no, that can't be true. Yeah, that's what they want. So I said, now I got to go do some research. Turns out they owe about, the Ghanaians owe about $29 billion in external debt. They're trying to get Germany to come in and bump for them. The Germans said, we will talk to the Chinese and if see, can they forgive some of the debt? But they're going to have to be some changes in your government. This is what they call structural adjustment. They've gotten some guarantees from the International Money Fund, all of that. So, you know, IMF, Ghana was in decent shape, but then they got into debt. What are they saying? The Germans are saying that the biggest loss maker in Ghana is the energy sector. There's your clue. So you're going to come back in and try to invade, and you're going to talk to the Chinese to forget that debt, but in exchange for what? Because here come the IMF. Y'all going to have some austerity measures. you got some private investors coming in here. This is going to be a problem. We're having this conversation in a barbershop. Now, I'm not saying that African-Americans are not having that conversation, but I am kind of saying that we're not having that conversation. <laughs> I'm saying these cats are here just cutting hair. But it's not just kind of Africans. It's African Caribbean in that barber. That's why I like going in there. It's Africans from the United States, other places. So we're talking about all kinds. But it's a political conversation. Then the brother come in to Nigeria, and they're giving him hell over the Nigerian elections. And immediately he changed the conversation to football or soccer, which takes them off course for about five minutes. But they never leave the conversation, drawing the metaphor for soccer back to the politics. My point is that. Our conversations change the more we know about the world. And it's not that we shouldn't talk about sports. It's not that we shouldn't talk about Charlemagne arguing with Angela Yee and thereby putting his brain on display because the brother doing the best he can. He's South Carolinian too, God bless him. But it's about putting all of that in a narrative conversation when we are kind of guided in how to have those points of entry that can ultimately allow us to think because the world is too noisy now. And in all that noise, the forces that are organized with single-minded purpose, when you think they're all just talking about stuff, they all everybody ain't just talking about stuff. Some of these people got very clear plans, and we live according to those plans. When we develop very clear plans, we can live according to our plans, and guess what? They'll have to get up off the necks of not just us, but everybody else. I'm, yeah, so I'm thinking we're going to probably spend some time near the end of the month getting to the 15th Amendment. Okay. Because the, the 15th Amendment ends in um i mean is 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 adopted in the 30th of march and i want to spend some more time talking about that a little bit uh the big election in milwaukee we know the supreme court the brother did not win he didn't make the the, the top but whoever controls the wisconsin supreme court might be in a position to have to decide the fate of the 2024 federal elections there's a white woman who's running as democrat the the republican candidate is a is a is a trumper election denier um that will decide the swing of the court and i want to mention just one other thing the american negro academy was founded in 1897 this week and uh this is actually a great volume i'll just do this very quickly you know you, 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 let me just let me just uh, you did this so i can show you the book if i can find it i usually i pulled it because oh yeah here we go here we go this is called this is alfred moss's book the american negro academy voice of the talented 10th alfred moss I bring it up because Paul Dunbar was a was a member of the American Negro Academy. In fact, he was the one that suggested that they change the proposed name. Um, Alexander Crumble wanted to call it the African Academy because his generation of Africans, he was born in 1820s. I think it was 1820s. Anyway, he was an old man. He made transitions shortly thereafter. Um, but he founded, it was founded here in D.C. 
and they called everything African, African Methodist Episcopal Church, the African Lodge, which they renamed in honor of Prince Hall, the Masons. But they thought that it was very important that you have Africa at the center of it. Well, Dunbar and them from, from a, a, a subsequent generation, for them, Negro served a purpose like that. So in 1897, Dunbar suggests, let's change it to American Negro Academy. And they agree. Um, this is W.B. Du Bois, Alexander Crummel. These are the people who gave speeches. Du Bois's Conservation of Races was the second paper produced. The last paper in this volume, however, is uh, a paper on the 15th Amendment by John Wesley Cromwell, friends with Carter Woodson. It was published in D.C. in 1924, The Challenge of the Disfranchised, a plea for enforcement of the 15th Amendment. And what Cromwell says, he says, the Negro as a political element henceforth was to be a negligible factor in the party councils. He's talking about what happened after Reconstruction. But for the stern and invisible phalanx, which was inspired by the military leadership that it won in politics on the battlefield, the control of the nation of the party antagonistic to the 15th and other war amendments might have passed to them at that time instead of 40 years afterward. The story of this revolution remains to be told. Why do I say that? In 1924, Cromwell is warning us to be vigilant. And here we are with the all-time enemies in Mississippi attempting to reinstate the sequel to slavery, Jim and Jane Crow in the city of Jackson, you will fail because we're very clear when we had the momentum of enemy, uh, momentum of memory, who all time enemies are. The people in Mississippi and Texas and Florida and Pennsylvania and Maine and California and anywhere else who want to stand against our common humanity, we're not coming for you physically. No, we're going to, we're going to deescalate. We're going to make you step away from the whiteness. And in doing that, we will reinforce the fact that the society we want to live in is the one we have to make. There is no sheltered rear. I'll start with that. Amen. Amen. I say, I say. A uh, couple things. Uh, Biggie died, uh, was murdered on March 9th. Murdered on March 9th. Uh, born May 21st. I only know that because he's so close to being a tourist. Uh, also, <laughs> uh, it was Angela Rye who uh, schooled Leonard Charlemagne, the god. Uh, and she did it in a, in a very gentle way, yes. understanding the largeness of his platform that she doesn't. And he's also put coin in her pocket. So she's not going to completely eviscerate him on his own platform. Right. Although she kind of did uh, Angela Rye and letting him know how ignorant it was for him to even worry about what it looks like. If it's the truth, don't you want to tell the truth? Right. Uh, That's, I mean, right. Uh, That's, you know, right. That's right. What is that? Okay. And so there's that. And um uh, and then I want to end because the social structure will tell you today, March 4th, the inauguration of uh, FDR, the inauguration of Lincoln. You know, those are important. Oh, yeah. you, you laid out, you know, how we should be centering uh, the conversation. And so I just want to, you know, leave us with this flag of Ghana, which you explained before you know, how it came about. And, uh, you know, as, as things happen to develop in Africa, we should be mindful because it will impact us because that is the future. It was the past. It's the present. It is everything. It is the beginning, the alpha, and it will be the omega. And we need to step into the knowledge of self through this continent, through this landmass that we all, every single living human being came from. So uh, there's no race. No. It's just that. No. So. There's no race. Put down the whiteness. Join our Join humanity. Come on. Follow the black star. We good for that. We've been good for that since uh, the origin of human beings, huh? <laughs>
<laughs> love you. I love you so love much, bro. Love you too. <laughs> Moving into y'all in them streets and yeah, uh, office hours on Monday. Well, and, um, tomorrow is uh, our sister, right? Senyata, Dr. Senyata, Maroon's Medicine Chest in Nubia. Yeah. Uh, Meta Nature's on Tuesday. We got yoga with Lindsay on Wednesday. It just keeps going. The beat keep keeps going. going. And uh, I told you that we won't stop. On oh, Monday night now, we're doing Frame of Question 5. We, we continue the last part, last chapter, and then Gooby Wathiango, something turning and new. Also, um, I talked to Dan Black. We're going to pause before we go to Frame of Question 6 because we want to get in an, another conversation around Black on Black. So um, we'll do Oh, yeah. And Black, there he is right there. And Black is in rotation. Black out here, you have a global church. I'm like, what in the oh, world? This is man. so beautiful, Pro. You are I mean, you know, this is what you share. You share. You didn't, you didn't hoard, you didn't hoard your knowledge. What? You didn't you didn't hold your relationships. No. You you, you shared. You were like, this would be good for the people. And, well, we and it has been. You figured yeah. that out though, but you you figure it out. You figure it out. It's a beautiful thing. Oh. Love you. Love you too. All right, y'all. Bye. Love you. Bye.